Hi, everyone. I'm Father Gravy, and this is the Breakfast Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk about my grandparents, Manhattan cocktails, and what we can learn from the past. There's a framed picture I keep in my room of my grandfather, my mom's dad. It was taken on her wedding day, maybe earlier that day or before the reception. He's standing in the kitchen, wearing a tuxedo with a classic 1970s ruffled shirt. He's holding up a glass of a Manhattan cocktail, looking as though he's about to give a toast, and he has this thousand-watt smile on his face. You can almost feel it. My mom is the oldest of five and was the first to get married. My grandfather loved a good time, and this sure qualified. It's just a moment of pure joy. My grandparents weren't wealthy people. My grandfather was a New York City detective, and they struggled to put five kids through Catholic schools. But in that picture, he looks like a million bucks. I was really spoiled by my grandparents. Not in a material sense, but that I had them for so long. My mom's dad was the first of the four to go. He died when I was 27, during my first year of seminary. And he loved a Manhattan. Actually, all of my grandparents did. Maybe it's a generational thing. I don't think they'd understand much about the cocktail culture nowadays. They probably had never heard of a mixologist, and they weren't into fancy ingredients or creative concoctions. Just the basics. If you don't know what a Manhattan is, it's one of the classic cocktails, right up there with a martini. It's commonly thought to have been invented at the Manhattan Club in the 1870s, at a party hosted by Lady Randolph Churchill, the mother of Winston Churchill. Its main ingredient is a form of whiskey, usually bourbon or rye, mixed with sweet or red vermouth, and garnished with a cherry. Purists will insist upon a dash or two of bitters. It should only ever be stirred. In fact, my grandfather's signal for drinks was left hand shaped like it's holding a glass, right index finger making a stirring motion. That meant the party was ready to start. To this day, whenever I see someone sipping a Manhattan, I think of my grandparents, the good times we had, and that I hope to have again. Now, you might be wondering why I've delved into this perhaps overly sentimental tribute to my grandparents' drinking preferences. The thing is, I could have learned about Manhattans from any book or website, but it wouldn't have been the same. There's a connection here. It's steeped in family and memory and tradition. It's remembering not just my grandfather swirling his finger and smiling, but it's remembering him and everything he taught me. There are plenty of other examples I could give of things I learned from and associate with him, and I'm sure many of you have similar stories of your own. And we should tell them and honor them, because I think this type of fondness and respect is increasingly rare nowadays. The past seems ever more distant and irrelevant. I've often thought that an article could be written with the provocative title, My Grandparents Are Stupid. Let me explain. It's been observed that this is really the first generation in human history that thinks it has nothing to learn from their elders or ancestors. You can learn how to do pretty much anything with a quick Google search or YouTube video. And the pace of technological advancement has accelerated so fast that older generations are considered obsolete. There's a sense that if my grandmother doesn't even know how to send a text or post on Instagram, 
then what could she possibly have to teach me? That mindset seeps into an often subconscious worldview. Her wisdom, her values and morals, her religious beliefs and practices are as antiquated as a rotary phone or a telegraph machine. All that matters is what we have now, because it's the latest and the best and everything that came before, customs and belief and knowledge, might be good for curiosity or nostalgia, but has no real merit of its own. And so we treat it all with a patronizing patience. It's part of the cynical spirit that marks our time, a spirit that approaches everything that came before with, at best, indifference, at worst, hostility. The impulse to deconstruct, to tear down, to assume that we've finally figured it out, that we're the ones we've been waiting for. All of that bespeaks not just a staggering arrogance, but an ignorance as well. Remember the movie Wall Street, the original one from the late 1980s? There's a scene where Gordon Gekko, this big, high-powered finance guy, is talking on his cell phone. It was an early model. The name is priceless. It was called the Motorola Dynatac 8000X. And in 1987, it was a huge status symbol. Except it wasn't actually priceless. In today's money, it cost almost $10,000. Here's the thing, though. It was the size of a brick with this giant antenna, and it looks completely ridiculous. And one day, so will we. So what does all that mean for us? Well, it doesn't mean that we blindly go along with everything that came before, or that we aren't capable of advancing human knowledge and progress. That would be absurd. And some traditions aren't all that important. Just because this is the way something has always been done, doesn't necessarily mean it has to continue being done that way. Maybe we find a better way to do it, or we realize that that particular tradition is outdated and wrong. People and cultures evolve, and traditions do as well. But it does mean that our default setting is a sense of deference to our forebears, to their collective wisdom and experience. The English Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton once wrote that tradition is the democracy of the dead. He's saying that their voices should still be heard and counted, and that we disenfranchise them, disregard them, at our own peril. There's actually a principle named after this. It's called Chesterton's Fence. Chesterton basically said, let's say there's a random fence or gate across a road. It serves no obvious purpose, and the impulse is to tear it down. But maybe we should pause and reflect a bit before doing that. Maybe we should think someone obviously took the time to put that fence up and probably had a good reason for doing so. Just because that reason is unknown to us doesn't mean it's not still valid. Maybe we should give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, some of these traditions, like having a cocktail, are lighthearted. They make for fond memories and infuse a sense of continuity with the past, but nothing rises or falls on them. Then there are traditions that carry more weight, because they carry the wisdom of past ages, the lessons gleaned by millions of people over hundreds of years, and that usually retain their inherent value even with all the advancements in science and technology. 
These traditions also give people an identity, whether it be a nation or ethnic or religious group, a sense of who we are and where we come from. And that's all well and good as a sociological diagnosis. But there's a deeper problem here from the standpoint of faith. You see, Catholics don't have the option of disregarding the past. For Catholics, tradition has a special, even unique value. We talk about tradition spelled with a capital T. To distinguish it from all the various traditions we've been speaking about until now. In order to understand the difference, we have to zoom out for a moment. We believe that God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the flesh, the God-man, who became one of us so that we could know him, see him, love him, and be with him forever. That revelation, Jesus Christ himself, and all the truths connected to him, comes to us in two ways, in writing and by word of mouth. Most people are familiar with the written part, that sacred scripture, or the Bible. But Catholics don't believe that everything that Jesus revealed to his apostles was written down in the Bible. Even the Bible itself acknowledges this. St. John writes that there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's where the oral part comes in. In the first place, even the Bible itself comes from an oral tradition. After all, the earliest book of the New Testament was written about the year 50. That's almost two decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. So all that time, the life and teachings and miracles of Jesus were being passed on by word of mouth, until some of them were written down. And these truths continued to be passed down. From the apostles to their successors, the bishops, and from them to all the faithful through preaching and teaching. We call this tradition. The word tradition literally means handing down or handing over. Sacred tradition, the one we capitalize, contains those truths that have been handed down through the centuries. Both scripture and tradition, the written and the oral, have an equal and complementary role in transmitting God's revelation to us. In an earlier episode, we mentioned the four marks of the Church, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic. And we discussed what we mean when we say that the Church is Catholic or universal. This discussion touches on the last of those four marks, that the Church is apostolic. That means we believe the same faith, the same truths that the Apostles did, in which they faithfully handed down through the centuries. There is nothing we believe that the apostles didn't, and vice versa. We might have a deeper understanding of these truths after 2,000 years of reflection, prayer, and study, but it's the same faith, the same church. The teachings don't change, but we do. We grow in wisdom and learning, and so come to see these truths more clearly. It's like seeing someone in silhouette, then in some blurry way, then in black and white, then in color, then in 3D, then in person. That person hasn't changed at all. Our vision's just gotten better. And because these truths, gathered under the name of tradition, don't change, 
it means they have a normative and binding character. It's not up to us to evaluate them and decide their continued relevance, any more than we can reject something in Scripture. So, for example, we use water to baptize someone. Let's say, for some strange reason, that water becomes really unfashionable and there's a big push to use some other liquid in baptisms. Well, we just don't have that option. Someone can try to baptize, saying the right words, but if he uses anything else, pouring orange juice or ginger ale, then it's not a real baptism. Nothing happens. The same is true with the bread and wine at Mass. It's true of a lot of teachings and beliefs that we've held for 2,000 years. Now, some of these beliefs and practices are relatively uncontroversial. Take the Immaculate Conception, for example. That's the teaching that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was conceived free from original sin. Protestants will often ask where that is in the Bible. And we say it's not, at least not directly, and it doesn't have to be. So they disagree, and that's a fundamental difference between Catholics and Protestants. But most people don't get too worked up over it. Other beliefs that come from tradition, however, do tend to get people worked up, at least nowadays. The most obvious example is probably the all-male priesthood. That this is not just some outdated cultural artifact, but was Jesus' plan for his church. There are lots of other examples, from infant baptism to purgatory, and why we believe each of these could easily be an episode in its own right. This episode, though, is more of a bird's-eye view, understanding what tradition itself is and why we hold it to be so important. And that helps us to approach certain beliefs stemming from tradition that might nowadays be considered outdated or unfair. I always find it amusing and maybe a little frustrating when articles appear that poll Catholics on whether they agree with this or that teaching of the Church. These teachings aren't true just because we've always believed them. We've always believed them because they're true. That's why the call to, quote, get with the times rings hollow. Truth stands outside time. We could no sooner change these teachings than we could make two and two equal five. We believe also that God, who wants us to know him, isn't playing games with us. Should the church change one of these teachings, as those polls seem to advocate? It would mean that the church had been wrong for 2,000 years. Now, some might hear this as blindly clinging to outdated truths so as not to admit that we're wrong. That's one way to look at it, and I would say the wrong way. Rather, we believe that the Holy Spirit guides the church and all her members and is incapable of misleading so many for so long. Because while the church is made up of flawed people, you and me and the rest of the human race, she's also founded, guided, and protected by God himself. So that becomes a matter of faith. One either believes in the divine nature of the church and her teaching, or one doesn't. And we realize what the stakes are. If the church could be wrong about something in a fundamental area of faith and morals, then how could she claim to be credible on anything? Every teaching would be subject to the whims of each generation, to be revisited and reevaluated according to the shifting sands of fashionable opinion. In other words, truth would cease to exist, 
replaced by majority opinion. We believe the church is no more capable of doing that than an elephant is of becoming a horse. Rather, we're guided by that which has been handed down, the living word of God, made known to us in what the church has always believed and done. Our families, our elders, our forebears, prepare us to receive that truth by instilling in us a respect for what has come before, not blindly or unthinkingly, but in a way that is open to the wisdom of past ages. In other words, it's part of how God designed us. We come from a people, from a past. Receiving something handed down is built into our very nature. Learning and appreciating these little things, language and customs and food and drink, prepares us to receive the biggest thing of all, God himself. When I look back at that picture in my room, I pray that my grandfather is still beaming, only now at the wedding banquet of heaven. And I'm grateful to him for passing on to me not just his love of a good time, but his love for the good Lord. The same love that was passed on to him and to me from his parents all the way back to the apostles. And I think that definitely calls for a celebration. <laughs>